right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter 21, where we saw Jesus entering into Jerusalem for his final time, where he would be crucified and three days later rise from the dead. Now, in chapter 21, we basically saw um, two primary things. And that is the presentation of the king, which was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine and the testing of the lamb, which is the ultimate fulfilling of Exodus chapter 12. And that is when, when God commanded Moses to take the lamb, the lamb is to be taken on the 10th day and on from the 10th up unto the 14th day, the lamb is to be examined for spots or for blemishes. Now, we understand that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, and he fulfills that as spoken of by John the Baptist. And in that same sense, Jesus himself, after coming into Jerusalem for the final time, we see the leaders of the people testing and questioning Jesus. And this is an amplification of what is meant by the testing of the lamb for spots and blemishes testing of the Messiah for his own perfection to see if he truly passes the test. And this is the spiritual indication of what is taking place in the cha in chapters 21 as well as we'll see chapter 22. But nevertheless, in chapter 21, so we saw the coming of Jesus in uh, fulfilling Zechariah chapter nine, riding on the coat. Then we see Jesus cleansing of the temple for the second time. And one of the primary reasons he did this is because of all of the temple corruption from the family of Annas, that is from the family of the Sadducees who were primarily responsible for the temple. And it is then after these things, we also begin to see the questioning of Jesus. Also, we saw their indignation with Jesus because he permitted the children to praise him as the coming one, that is to praise him as the Messiah. Then we saw Jesus leaving and coming in and out of Jerusalem. As we said to you in the previous lesson, he never spent the night in Jerusalem when he came to Jerusalem for his final time. He never spent the night there. This was an indication that Jesus had rejected this Jerusalem, rejected this generation, rejected this people. Why? Of course, because they rejected Jesus. And so what we also saw as an indication of these things was as he was coming into Jerusalem again, there was the cursing of the fig tree. The fig tree, which symbolizes Jerusalem, which symbolizes literally that generation of the Jews, which rejected Jesus, that generation being will ultimately be destroyed. And the kingdom to which that generation, because they rejected Jesus, the kingdom was rescinded that they would not receive the kingdom, but the kingdom will be later on offered to another generation of Jewish people. But anyway, so we continued on with the authority of Jesus being challenged by the religious leaders, notably the Sadducees, which are, which are called the chief priests, because they, uh, the, remember, the chief priests 
came from the family of the Sadducees and they were the rulers of the temple grounds. And so they challenged Jesus's authority and all of these things. And we see Jesus coming back to them with in a rabbinical fashion with a question concerning John the Baptist concerning his ministry to the which Jesus asked them about the nature of John's ministry. Was it from men or was it from heaven? The Sadducees uh, hypocritical. They knew what they felt about John's ministry. They didn't believe that John's ministry was from heaven. So they answered, they didn't know. And Jesus began to build on his own question concerning John. Since they didn't answer, he gave them a parable, the parable of two sons. And in that particular parable, his main point was the tax collectors and, uh, uh um, prostitutes, which, which were considered the dredges of society and the worst by these so-called religious leaders would enter into the kingdom before these so-called religious leaders. Why? Because they believed and responded to the message of John the Baptist and Jesus continued because the focus is on the religious leaders as it is in all of 21, as it will be in all of 22. And we'll even see in chapter 23 when he will seriously upbraid the religious leaders. But nevertheless, the focus still on the religious leaders. He gave an additional parable concerning the parable of the land owners. That is one who was given take uh, um, to be caretakers of a master's vineyard. And their responsibility was to see to it and give up the fruit to the master once the time had come. And this he styled in the sense of what the religious leaders had done to those who proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, that, that is to John the Baptist, even the disciples of Jesus, and ultimately what they would do to Jesus himself and how God would respond because of their rejection of Jesus in his first advent. That is the destruction of Judea, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And Jesus pretty much ended it with that, simply saying that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was God's plan. And it is not a marvelous thing to which God had done. So basically what we saw is that Jesus uh, dealing with the religious leaders and their rejection of him. But what we need to keep in mind is ultimately Exodus chapter 12, the testing of the lamb for blemishes, because this is what the religious leaders unaware are actually doing with Jesus by their coming to him and questioning him. They are testing him to see or to show to indicate ultimately that indeed Jesus is a worthy lamb without spot and without blemish. Okay. With all of that, now let's get into chapter 22 as we continue the questioning of Jesus, as we continue the testing of the lamb. Now chapter 22, again, like 21 is a long chapter but the material in chapter 22 is not difficult. And I do believe like 21, we'll be able to finish all of 22 in a single video. So let's get started. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven 
may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who had been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, and throw him into outer darkness. In that place, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, few are chosen. Okay, so now Jesus continues speaking to the leaders and he styles this particular parable that he gives to the leaders of the people as a wedding feast. And the, one of the primary reasons that Jesus does these things is, the kingdom, that is the messianic kingdom, had been many times, even in scripture and in the mind of these Jewish leaders, understood to be a great gathering of a wedding feast in a type of a celebration. So in keeping with this, Jesus gives this particular parable of a wedding feast, and he said it was like a king who had a marriage for his son. And so what he did was he called his slaves. Now you got to remember that Jesus is directing his comments primarily to the leaders of the people, to these very ones who have been questioning Jesus, that is the Sadducees, even the Pharisees, about Jesus' authority as to why he is doing such things. These very leaders who have already rejected Jesus as Messiah. And also too, as Jesus styles this parable concerning celebration in the kingdom, we have to remember that it was Jesus who in his first coming had come to the nation of Israel and Jesus in doing all of those signs and wonders to prove that he was the Jewish Messiah had offered the kingdom to them. He had offered the messianic kingdom to that generation, but that generation in order to receive the kingdom had to receive Jesus as the Messiah. But we know what happened. The religious leaders rejected Jesus as Messiah and they continued to influence the people to reject Jesus as the Messiah. Therefore, 
the offer of the kingdom to that generation was rescinded. Jesus would no longer be king and the kingdom would not come to that generation because of the obstinance of the leaders of the people. And so this is basically what we see in this particular parable with the king sending out his slaves. One of the idea that can be uh, indicated an indication of this first group of slaves coming, we could see as John the Baptist, because that was the very purpose of John the Baptist to announce the fact that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and that all Israel should listen to him, believe in him and follow him as the Messiah. So this is the first, uh, uh, symbol of the group of slaves. Then there were additional slaves that were sent and that would be Jesus sending, notice Jesus sent the 12. He gave them power and authority over sicknesses and diseases to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah and that the nation should believe in him. The work was so great. What did Jesus do? He even sent out 70 additional men to proclaim the messiahship of Jesus. He empowered them. And that is the reason why he gave them power to prove that, the, to, 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 that the people should listen to the message, to authenticate the message. What message? Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Let all the Jewish people believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus as king, he will establish the kingdom. These are the slaves, John the Baptist, the disciples of Jesus, even 70 other men. And what did they do as the parable styled it? They mistreated some and they even killed others. And we see this as well in the extension of the kingdom. Oh, I would love to get into it, but I cannot, I cannot. But we see this even in the continued work of the apostles in the book of Acts. Once the apostles have been filled with the Holy Spirit from the day of Pentecost. I'm sorry I can't get into it with great detail. Maybe I will when we get into the book of Acts. But once the apostles have been filled with the Holy Spirit, they continue the work and ministry of Jesus in Israel, proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. And we even see in Peter, I believe that somewhere, maybe around Acts chapter three or four, where Peter tells them to repent, believe in Jesus. And if they do, God will send Jesus back. So the offer of the kingdom is still being extended. And that gives understanding to this parable right here even more. What is the point? That is Jesus says what? As he sends the slaves out and, and sends them to the people uh, uh, to come to the wedding feast. The invitation goes to the leaders because that's primarily whom Jesus is directing it. Now we know it is to all of Israel that this invitation is to, but primarily it is being directed to the leaders. And, and we can see the leaders rejection of Jesus as Messiah in their rejection of the invitation. 
What happened when the king sends them for the wedding feast that sends the invite to the wedding feast? They ignore it. Some go into his own business and everything else. In other words, they decline the invitation. They decline the invitation into the kingdom because they have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so therefore, what happens? The invitation is, ex okay, I'm going a little bit too fast. Let me slow it down. Because of their mistreatment of the slaves, notice what they did. They beat some, mistreated some, and even killed others. We saw that with whom? John the Baptist. We even saw that in the book of Acts with the first apostle being killed which is James, the apostle being killed. And we saw the response in the ultimate rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And that's what we've been building up to in the book of Matthew. That's what Matthew is explaining in his gospel. Why uh, uh, Jesus was rejected. Why Jerusalem was ultimately destroyed for their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. That's the ultimate thing that Matthew is building up to. That is the destruction of Jerusalem for the rejection of Jesus, for the killing of the slaves, for the mistreatment of the slaves who are the John the Baptist, the apostles of Jesus, for those who were preaching the gospel to Israel, trying to get Israel to accept Jesus, their ultimate, the rulers, ultimate rejection of Jesus, which led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus. And so this is what the parable is talking about. What will the king do because of their mistreatment of his slaves? He will destroy those people and burn their cities. Destruction of Jerusalem. Then the invitation will be extended into the highways. This is the bringing in of the Samaritans and the Gentiles. This is the offer of the gospel, the continued preaching and spreading of the gospel, preaching of Jesus as Messiah, invitation into the wedding feast, preaching of Jesus to the Gentile nations. Uh, so this is about um, the invitation into the kingdom. And finally, when the time of the kingdom has arised. So what do we see? Let's finish this parable. The king comes in. He looks over his dinner guests, those who have been invited. He sees a man who is not dressed in the finery. So apparently what the king did was the king provided apparel. The king provided clothing for his dinner guests. Remember, he's getting people for all kinds of people. That's when he's talking about the wicked and the bad, the good and the bad, and people from everywhere. People from everywhere. This is a picture of the Gentiles. But he provided clothing for them since he's getting them off the streets and everywhere else. That's the idea. And he sees this man for some reason who has not wearing the clothing the king has provided. So he has rejected the clothing that the king had provided. And yet he still tries attempts to come into the wedding banquet. When the king sees this particular man, he 
questions him why he is dressed in this fashion. He is not born with the king has provided and therefore he commands the king, this man to be taken away and cast out, which is the picture of eternal damnation is the picture of hell. And then he says, many are called and few are chosen. So let me get to that because I'm excited to get to that. So what the king here with, this is God. We understand the son is Jesus, the Messiah. We understand that the wedding feast is the coming kingdom. And this will be uh, later on into the future. And this is the extension of the offer that has been made to another generation. That is the Gentiles, even to all peoples. But the point that I want to deal here with is the clothing. Clearly the king has provided clothing. The man has rejected or refused to wear the clothing that the king has provided. Let me simply say in a nutshell, the clothing that this king has provided simply is a picture of the righteousness of Christ. That is without getting into all of the theological mishmash, the righteousness of Christ by faith. That is the clothing that the king provides is if you're going to get into the wedding feast, ultimately, if you're going to come into the kingdom of God, you must come in the way that God has provided. And what is the way that God has provided? What is the clothing that we must wear? Faith in Jesus alone. There is no other clothing that God has provided. There is no other way that God has provided. How can a man enter the kingdom of God? By having faith in what Jesus alone has done. The life that Jesus has lived to provide righteousness for us because he indeed is a lamb without spot and blemish. Also, the death that Jesus died on the cross, he pays, pri pays the price for our sin and in his resurrection from the dead, the approval of God the Father that he has accepted the sacrifice of the Son and, and, in the person of Jesus, that he is God almighty. For if you believe, for if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. He is God. And believe in your heart, what? That God has raised him from the dead, the atoning work of Jesus. Then you will be saved. This is the clothing that God has provided for all those who seek to come, who seek to join the wedding feast. So he sees a man, he sees a person who intends, who thinks that he can come into the kingdom by works or by some other means or by some other religion. It's a beautiful thing, is it not? No other way than by what God has provided faith in Jesus alone, Jesus's person and Jesus's works. You must believe in that and that alone 
for by works, no man shall come into the kingdom of God. None of us can be saved by what we do. None of us can be saved by putting on the clothes we want to wear. We must put on the clothes that God has already given us. And what are those clothes again? Faith in Jesus alone. Okay, enough preaching in that. But the reason why I wanted to highlight that because what? What did the king do when he saw the man who didn't have on those clothes, the clothes that he provided, that the king provided? What did he do to the man? He sent him to hell. That's why it's so important. It is only by what God provides and what God has done. And what has God done? Book of Galatians, faith in Jesus alone is what saves a man is what allows a man to get into the kingdom. And that's why he ends and says for many are called that is remember he went all throughout the hedges, the highways and all of that to call many, many heard the call, but nevertheless it is still by way. Salvation is still by way of election. Few are chosen. It is not every man shall enter, but only those whom God has determined to in enter. Only those who wear the clothing that God has prepared. So nevertheless, I enjoy that. Nevertheless, the whole point of this particular parable is Jesus is directing it to the leaders of the people, those who are questioning Jesus at this particular time. And he is simply saying to them, you have rejected me as your Messiah. When God has sent these slaves, the messengers, I have sent messengers to you. You have rejected me. You have mistreated them. You have killed some of them. You will ultimately kill me. We know he said even earlier. And the response of God is to destroy your city. And what will happen? He will send out the message to the Messiah, the message of the kingdom, the message of faith in Jesus, even to others, because you yourself are not worthy. You were not deemed worthy by God and they will respond. But nevertheless, there will be qualifications among those to whom the message is sent. You cannot simply come. However, you want to come. You must come dressed in the, in the clothing that the king has provided. That is in the faith that, that God has determined for you to have faith in Jesus alone. It is a qualifying interest into the kingdom. Why many are called, few are chosen. It is still qualifying into the kingdom. Okay, beautiful thing, isn't it what our Lord was saying? So now let's continue. Now we get into the questioning of Jesus more so by the different groups. And this just simply highlights what I was saying to you earlier about Exodus chapter 12, the testing of the lamb. In chapter 22, it will be a completion of the testing of Jesus. He will be found to be a lamb without blemish. So let's simply continue. Verse number 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him 
along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me? You hypocrites show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. Okay. So now we see again, continued testing of Jesus. Remember spiritual Exodus chapter 12, testing of the lamb for spot and blemishes. We see now the Pharisees coming and the Herodian. Now what's, what is unique about this is enemies can make friends when they have a common enemy. And what I mean by that is the Pharisees uh, 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 and the Herodians were enemies. Why? The Pharisees did not support Rome. The Herodians did support Rome and the Herodians, really one of the reasons why they supported Rome because the Herodians were seeking for power for themselves. So this is the family of Herod and those who supported Herod and as well as his family. And so normally the Pharisees and the Herodians would be an antagonistic group. They didn't get along, but because they had something in common, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. They decided to put, put away their differences and come together against Jesus. So what do they do? They come to Jesus and they give him all of these flowering, uh, 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 things that they said about him, calling him teacher. And then they're trying to set Jesus up. We know that you teach the way of truth. And then and we know that you don't care for the person of anybody. And here's what they're inflicting. Uh, suggesting you don't care for us. You don't care for nobody else. You don't even care about Caesar. So that's the idea. They're trying to get him to say something against Caesar. That's the main point. So what do they do? So they present a question to Jesus and ask him, should they pay the poll tax? Which basically was a tax that all male Jews had to pay. All male Jews had to pay a tax. And so what they were doing was this. If in how Jesus answered the question, one or two ways, if Jesus said, no, we should not uh, pay the tax, this would uh, query favor with the Jewish people because they hated the Romans. Okay. They hated the Romans, but at the same time, this would cause problems with uh, Caesar. Remember, it's a dangerous thing to speak against Caesar and to cause or lead a rebellion against Caesar. And Jesus was being considered by a leader amongst the people. And they could use this to say unto Caesar, you know, Jesus is causing a rebellion against Caesar. So a rebellion against Rome. So there was no easy way out on this thing. And if Jesus said, yes, pay your taxes, they could say unto the Jewish people, look, he's taking the side of the Romans. He's no Messiah to the Jews. He's a, a, a Roman benefactor. 
So they presented a question to Jesus that no matter which position Jesus took, they thought they had him trapped. So Jesus understood their hypocrisy and notice how Jesus, once again, what I want you guys to see, Jesus, you, they said Jesus had no respect of persons. Indeed, he did not because look what Jesus said to them, you hypocrites. He said it to their faces. And I like how Jesus is so straightforward in how he deals with people. He didn't cut corners and he didn't cut his words, but nevertheless, he tells them, go get him a coin. And notice they had to go and find a Roman coin because normally the Jews wouldn't carry these coins. So they went and found him a Roman coin, a denarius. And so Jesus asked them, he said, all right, take the coin. Look at it and tell me whose inscription do you see on this coin? And of course, on the coin's face, they would see a picture of Caesar. And so Jesus simply responded, okay, this is Caesar's coin. Then therefore give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things that are God. And the answer was so magnificent as the coin bear the image of Caesar. Fine. Give Caesar that which belongs to him. And also this is implied too how it is right even for Christians, Romans chapter 13, it is right even for Christians to pay taxes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and then also to God the things that are God. What is the thing that belongs to God? All of a man's life. So Jesus answered the question brilliantly and notice the response of the people. Notice the response of the leaders when Jesus said that. And in hearing this, they were amazed. And I like this. I think it comes from that Greek word here, theomatso, which literally means to be shocked out of their minds at Jesus's answer. Reason why I'm giving uh, 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 you guys this information is simply because I want you to understand how Jesus is passing their test. Or in other words, the fulfillment of Exodus chapter 12, Indeed, the lamb is spotless and without blemish. They were absolutely amazed at Jesus's answer. So he passes the test of these leaders. What? The Pharisees and the Herodians. So now let's continue with the further testing of the lamb. Questioning of Jesus by the Sadducees. Verse number 23. On that day. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. <laughs> but Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. 
For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay. <laughs> when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Keep noticing that. Okay. Okay. So now let's get into this next group, which are, which is the Sadducees. All right. And the first thing that this points out in the scripture is one of the primary beliefs of the Sadducees is, or should I even say disbeliefs of the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits. But the primary thing was the Pharisees were liberal theologians. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they come to Jesus addressing him again with falsities as if falsities of praise teacher. And then they begin to quote what Moses talked about concerning the leveret marriage. The leveret marriage simply was spoken of in the book of Deuteronomy. If a man marries a woman and he dies before giving a child to that woman, his brother should take up that woman and marry that woman to produce a seed in the name of the dead brother. So the Sadducees said that there was a particular occasion in which a man had a wife. He died before having children. This man had, this man had seven other seven brothers all together and each man married that woman consecutively without having children. And so they asked Jesus, since there is a resurrection of the dead and each man married this wife, then when they resurrected from the dead, whose wife shall she be? Because all seven brothers had married this particular woman. Now, first of all, let me start here with a personal observation. If they had come to me asking this question about the seven brothers who married this woman, and all of them seemed to die without having children, all seven brothers, before I would have answered the question concerning resurrection of the dead, even though I know I'm not Jesus, but the first thing I would have been concerned was, what is going on with this woman? All these men keep marrying this one woman and these men keep dying. One man after another keep dying. We need an investigation into this woman. <laughs> That's the first thing that I would have asked. But back to the commentary of the scriptures. So they're asking this question to Jesus. No doubt these Sadducees had stomped the Pharisees who the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Okay. They stumped the Pharisees with this question, no doubt many a time. So here they come in their own arrogance, knowing we got him now, just like we got the Pharisees and he will not be able to answer this question just like they did. And they're going to try to not only just stump Jesus in the question, but also prove there is no resurrection of the dead. So when Jesus answers their question, all right, 
in the resurrection, whose might shall there be? That's then that's what they're assuming. Okay. Jesus answered the question and simply says, number one, you are mistaken. Remember, he's talking to these so-called educated religious leaders. Notice what he says. You do not understand the scriptures by y'all. <laughs> A forward slap in the face because if anybody thought that they understood the scriptures, they did. And what did Jesus, I like it. No respect of persons. Indeed, he didn't. He says, you think you know the scriptures and you don't even understand the scriptures. Number one, Jesus said there are two problems with this. Number one, you don't understand the scriptures. And number two, you don't understand the power of God. Why? And he begins to elaborate further. For in the resurrection, in other words, as he continues to answer that question, he tells them, indeed, there will be a resurrection of the dead. So number one, he tells the Sadducees, you're incorrect in believing that there is no resurrection. There will be a resurrection of the dead. But he continues to answer the question, for in the resurrection of the dead, what? They don't marry, nor are they given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So he clarifies one thing. There will be a resurrection of the dead. And when the resurrection does come, there will not be the same social system as we understand it. That is, Jesus not trying to give a full eschatological picture. He's not trying to give what? A full eschatological. And when I say eschatological, it means a picture of what things will be like in the final kingdom of God. This, this is not the kingdom of the Messiah that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is here talking about the kingdom of God. And that's when Paul talks about in first Corinthians chapter 15, when the son delivers up the kingdom to the father so that God will be all and in all. This is the eternal kingdom. This is the eternal state. That's why I said to you, Jesus is not trying to give a full eschatological picture. That is first is the kingdom of the Messiah. This kingdom, which will last for a thousand years in the kingdom of the Messiah, there will be certain ones, some in the kingdom who will marry and be given into marriage. Not all, but some. But then after the kingdom of the Messiah, Revelation chapter 21 enters the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of the father in which will be the eternal state of all men into which none will marry and none will be given into marriage. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So once again, and since Jesus is not trying to give a full eschatological picture, I will not either. This is not the time for such things. And I know you guys may want to hear that. So I'm sorry. We cannot, we can't do that in every turn or we'll never finish this chapter. But the point is, Jesus simply saying in the eternal kingdom of God, the father, all, they will be in eternal bodies 
and having eternal bodies, there will be no need of marriage. Why? Because the purpose of marriage was for procreation. Since there is the eternal kingdom, there is no need for the procreation of the species anymore. We will have new bodies and those bodies will be eternal. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Okay, so he answers that. Then he deals also with a second question uh, that is concerning the resurrection of the dead, those who live before God, with a, a question that they really didn't ask, but Jesus kind of gave further information on this. He says, now concerning the re resurrection of the dead, uh, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What you have to understand is the present tense verb that Jesus used. Now this can kind of be confusing if we don't watch it carefully. Notice what Jesus said. He's quoting God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter three. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, and cease to exist according to the beliefs of the Sadducees. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead and did no longer exist, God would not have said, I am their God. He would have said to, to Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because they're not here anymore. But because he said, I am the God. That means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead and no longer exist. They continue to exist. Therefore, Jesus said in stating, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of those who do not exist. God of the dead. God is God is the God of those who continue to live. So therefore there is the continuance of existence after the death of the body. So not only is Jesus teaching resurrection, he is also teaching the continuation of life, the continuation of existence, even after the body dies, even after death. So he's hitting the Sadducees in two points, resurrection, as well as the continuation of life by saying what? Not I was their God cause they're gone. No, I am their God because they are still alive. Okay. And when Jesus gave this particular tip and when Jesus quote, let me throw this in another little caveat. When he quoted Exodus chapter three, what was so amazing about Jesus quoted and the reason why he quoted Exodus, Exodus, he quoted from the first five books of Moses. The reason why he gave that particular quote was because the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of Moses as being authentically from God. As far as the books of the prophets, the Psalms and things of that nature, they did not accept those as divine in the same sense as the first five books. So the, the Sadducees, Sadducees 
only accepted as divine inspired word, the first five books. So in Jesus quoting from Exodus, second of those books, he got them on the money from the very book that they themselves accept as divine. He quoted that book and from that they could not deny resurrection. Okay. And that's why, what do we see? The response of the people notice again, the exaggerated response. They were astonished. They were perplexed out of their mind with Jesus answers and, and they were just knocked off their feet. And even in another gospel, it said, even the Pharisees, because they were stumped by the Sadducees many times with this, even the Pharisees had to say to Jesus, master, you answered well, you got them. But nevertheless, what are we saying again? Exodus chapter 12, the lamb is truly proving itself to be without spot and blemish. Jesus is indeed passing the test. Okay. All right. Let's continue with the next group in the testing here. Once again, the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. <laughs> so once again, now here comes the Pharisees. Okay, let's break it down. So the Pharisees began to test Jesus, seeing that he had put the Sadducees to silence. And now this, what they do is they bring to bring with one of them an expert in the law. And that's what it means by a lawyer. So they intend to trap Jesus even further to test him. And, they, and this particular lawyer asked Jesus, okay, Jesus, and you can see him in his lawyerness, in his expert in the law of Moses. Okay, Jesus, what's the greatest law? What is the greatest commandment of them all? And Jesus simply answered him from the Shema to be even explicit Deuteronomy six and five, but the Shema Deuteronomy six and four, hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall therefore love the Lord your God all your heart, all your soul, and all your veriness with all your might. So Jesus simply answered him from this, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you have. But he even went further than that. Cause remember the, the, the lawyer asked him the greatest Jesus continued to say, and there is a second commandment that is very similar to this one next to it. That is to love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus did was 
He took the principle of the Decalogue. Remember, the Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. And then the Ten Commandments, the first part of the Ten Commandments can be understood as those that which has to do with God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God besides me. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't worship uh, images and things of that nature. Things that pertain to God. And then don't lie. Don't steal. Don't kill things that pertain unto man. So the first set of the Decalogue, love the Lord your God with everything. And the second set of the Decalogue, love your neighbor as yourself. Thing that had to do with how we interact and deal with one another. And so Jesus basically gave a composite statement of the Decalogue and what he simply said was this, all of the law, all 613 commandments, all of the preaching of the law, all of the preaching of the prophets, all of the law basically stems from these two commandments. And so it is, it is such a beautiful, Jesus is perfect and absolute in every way. He took all of the law. He took all of the preaching of the prophets and basically boiled them down into two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. All of it comes from these two commandments. And we'll even see, even in other gospels, the response of the lawyer. He himself was so pleased with Jesus' answer. And he said, Master, rightfully so. No other commandment greater than these. And he said, Jesus, you answered well. And we can even see Jesus responding to this lawyer and even says, you yourself are not far from the kingdom. But anyway, Matthew is not getting to all of that. So I won't get into all of that, but I will say this because the lawyer was so began to be so impressed with Jesus answer. And Jesus even saying to the lawyer, uh, you're not far from the kingdom. We can see why they stopped asking Jesus any more questions. Why? As the lawyer was starting to be persuaded to believe in Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah. The rulers say, let's stop there so we don't get any more losses to Jesus. <laughs> Beautiful. The lamb is indeed proving himself to be without what? Spot and blemish. And that's what we see in the testing of Jesus. Okay, let's bring the chapter to a close. Well, now Jesus flips the script. He turns the table and he now Ask them a question, these very Pharisees. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. <laughs> so what happens? 
And Jesus questioned to the Pharisees. And it's a beautiful thing, too, because the Pharisees accept all the scripture to be divine, the law, the psalm, as well as the prophets. So Jesus asked them a question concerning the Messiah from the Psalms. And so he asked the question. He said, why the Pharisees are gathered? Okay. Tell me about the Christ. And that is, tell me about the Messiah. Whose son is the Messiah? He asked the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees answers Jesus very quickly. The, the Messiah is the son of David. Why? Because the Messiah descends from the family of David. Jesus, he is from the line of David. So therefore, the Messiah is the son of David. And so therefore, Jesus said, OK, fine. If the Messiah is the son of David, how can David say in the spirit? And when he says in the spirit, that is in an undeniable way. As it is recorded in the scripture, Psalm 110, as it is recorded in the scripture, and Yahweh says to my Lord. So here is David speaking. David says, and Yahweh, God, says to David's Lord, Adonai, which, which and we're not going to get into all of the theological import here, Adonai is God. So there is an implication clearly here that the Messiah is God. But what is unquestionable and understood in the mind of the Pharisee, they understood it well. When David said, my Lord, David was talking about David's Lord, who is the Messiah. Because why? That's the Psalm 2 issue. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the Messiah who sits at the right hand of God. But the point that Jesus is making here is David calls the Messiah his Lord, which deals with the pre-existence. So what Jesus is saying is this. David says, Yahweh, God, is saying to the Messiah, the Messiah, who is my Lord. I want you to do these things in the pre-existence of the Messiah. He has to be more than a man because why David is speaking to the Messiah about the Messiah to God about the Messiah before the Messiah is born. Why? David says this many centuries before the Messiah is ever born. But if the Messiah has not been born, how can God speak to one who has not been born? So he brings in the idea of pre-existence that the Messiah must have existed before he even took flesh. How can the Messiah exist before he takes flesh? What exactly is the nature of the Messiah? For the Pharisees are understanding him simply to be the son of David. The, the Pharisees understand him simply to be one who will come. He'll be king, but he'll be a great man. Jesus is saying, is the Messiah just 
a man? Because if he is just a man, how can he pre-exist? How can God speak to him before he is ever born? And the question threw the Pharisees for a loop. They had no idea because he shattered their theological thinking. And because they were so impressed with Jesus' question and dumbfounded with Jesus' question, effectively, what did it do? Shut their mouths. And so what does he say? Matthew says, and they dare not ask Jesus a question anymore from that day forward. So two things would happen. Jesus passed their test. The lamb indeed as being uh, observed by the rulers, the lamb indeed passed the test to be without spot and blemish. Jesus passed the test of the rulers of his day and he passed all of their questions. And in the very end, what? He silenced all of their objections to his messiahship. He silenced all of their objections to his wisdom, to his knowledge, to his authority. He shut their mouths. And even though they are still intent on killing him, guess what? Concerning this lamb, you find no fault at all. All right. Wasn't it so? I love chapter 22 as it simply closes the whole concept, ideally, concerning the test of the lamb, simply to say that Jesus passed the test of Moses in Exodus chapter 12. The lamb is indeed without spot and blemish. All right, guys. So thanks for joining me with that. Once again, we do make a plead unto you to support the ministry. Again, I got, I'm quite sure you guys have noticed there are no commercials, no YouTube advertisement, simply because we turned this off so that you can enjoy these teachings without all of those foolish interruptions. But nevertheless, these things are at a cost and you understand and know these things. So again, I petition you, come alongside with me, support the ministry, however God touches your heart. And I know God will do just that. But anyway, look in the description below. You will see a link there and how you can support the ministry. Thank you for your support. For those of you who have support, thank you so much. And for those who haven't, I pray that you'll join alongside all of us in the work of this ministry. But join me next time as we get into chapter 23 in dealing with these leaders we're still talking about the leaders of the people those who have been testing jesus and questioning jesus now is time for the tables to be completely turned and where the leaders who have rejected jesus and questioned jesus and jesus has silenced them now jesus is going to upbraid these rulers and leaders of the people telling them it was his desire to offer them the kingdom, bring the kingdom, but they refused him as the Messiah. And therefore, like he said in his parable, what will the king do to those who have rejected his son, who have rejected the marriage feast, 
who have mistreated the slaves and killed them, he will destroy their city. Jesus will say to those leaders, you and your kingdom will be destroyed. So join me next time as we get into that prophetic word from Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. Can't wait to get into that with you then. So see you next time.